So you guys ready for the word? Are y'all thankful for the presence of God? I don't know about you, but I feel gratitude rising in my heart this morning. How many of you know that we've got a lot to be grateful for? Amen? Can I just tell you this? Even if you feel like right now in your life you don't have a whole lot to be grateful for, we have the reason to be grateful because we're saved, because we have been recipients of salvation. Now, I can just, let me just tell you this. That means that like, if right now in your life you feel like there's kind of darkness all surrounding you, sometimes you just need to remind yourself that there is light at the end of this tunnel. I'm talking about the hope of heaven. I'm talking about the fact how we have been recipients of this great grace, and now we are citizens of heaven. And so what does that mean? That means that if you were like me this morning, and you woke up, and you you back is sore, and you you slept like a rock. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? These allergies are kicking your butt. It's not going to be like that in heaven. That means what if your kids are not listening to a word you got to say and not obeying and doing everything else? It's not going to be like that in heaven. That means when you go to work tomorrow and your boss is on your case, or for those of you who are are going back into college and you're having to deal with all of these classwork, that's not going to be like that in heaven. We have the hope of heaven, guys, and I just want to just stir your hearts this morning just to be grateful for all that God has done for us. He is such a good God. He's such a good God. And uh, I tell you, I'm excited about kicking off a new series. We did just end our all-in series. And uh, yeah, that's the longest series I've ever preached in my 26 years of being a pastor. I know I only look like I'm maybe 32, but uh, yeah, I've been in ministry a long time now. I'm 47. And today, we're kicking off a new series called Unhindered. Y'all ready for this? Now that we are all in, we must now remain unhindered in the work that God has called us to. And by the way, just in case you're wondering where I got that title from, the word unhindered is the last word of the last chapter of the last verse in the book of Acts. And I felt like that word really communicated like the next direction that I wanted to go, which is the book of of Colossians. And the reason why is because of what Paul has to say in it, because I think that it just reveals his heart for those of us who now that we're like, yes, I'm all in. Now, how do we remain unhindered? And this letter is a letter to the Colossians, which is an encouragement to remain steadfast, to be rooted deeply in Christ, and to not be swayed by worldly distractions or by false teachings. How many of you know that there's false teachings out there in the world today? And so what we're talking about through this series is just as relevant as whenever Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. In fact, it's perhaps even more critical in our current age of information overload and all of the Various voices that are always vying for our attention. I'm talking about the comparing voices of ideology and competing ideologies and philosophies that can easily lead us astray to the truth of the gospel. And so being unhindered means guarding our hearts and our minds from those things and against the allures of the worldly distractions that seek to pull us away from God's purposes. And so what does that mean? That means that we've got to nourish our relationship with Christ 
and deepen our understanding of his word and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that Jesus says, it's better that I go away because I'm going to send my paraclete, my helper, my Holy Spirit, and thank God for the spirit of the living God, amen? He does not leave us here on our own, and that's why Jesus said, he said, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. We have the spirit of the living God, church. Come on, someone should be thanking God and praising God and not looking at me like a cow at a new gate, all right? We have the spirit of the living God. Come on, somebody. And so this series, let me just say that it's going to be much like our first series, which we're going to be just going chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, through the book of Colossians. And through this series, we're going to be talking about a lot of things like the freedom that we have in Christ and the richness of a life that is centered around his truth. We're going to learn how to walk in wisdom and how to bear fruit in every good work. And we're going to grow in our understanding of God's plan and his purpose for our lives. And so why don't we just pray and then let's just dive into God's word. Amen? Come on, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for how it changes us, how it strengthens us, and how it leads us. God, may our hearts and our minds be open as your word does its work in us. And may we remain unhindered in our pursuit of your calling that you've placed on our life. May your light shine brightly through us to a world that desperately needs it. So do your work, precious Holy Spirit. We invite you to have your way in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you need a little help locating it, Colossians is just after the book of Philippians, and it's right before 1 Thessalonians. Just to give you a little bit of a background about the city, Colossae was nestled in the picturesque Lycus Valley, which was in ancient uh, Asia Minor, which is the modern country of Turkey. I had the privilege of getting to hike it back in 2007, and the archaeological remains, it tells us a lot about the city. First of all, it wasn't this large metropolis like its neighboring uh, Ephesus, but it was a smaller city. However, at one point it carried great significance and it was known as a thriving place. But by the time that Paul had written his letter to the church at Colossae, its prominence had began to wane because of nearby competing cities. I want you to kind of maybe think of Savannah, Georgia, uh, just to give you a little bit of a modern-day comparison. Like, both of those cities are historically significant and were once a thriving community that has faced decline uh, over time. And much of that reason was due to competing cities outpacing them in economic dominance. Well, that's Colossae at the time that Paul wrote the letter. Yet despite the fact that Colossae had experienced some decline, the Colossian church was vibrant and fervent in their faith. And I just want to take a moment to highlight something here that the Colossian church is about to teach us. And that is this. Your circumstance does not dictate your destiny. And this is a critical truth for us to grab hold of because our faith, It can never be dependent upon the success of external things, but rather upon our deep-rooted relationship with Christ. 
It's about us being all in, fully committed to God's calling, regardless of the challenges that we face. Now, as we dive into the text, I want you to keep in mind that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae while he was in prison. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon are all letters which are often referred to as the prison epistles. And they were probably written at about the time when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And each of these epistles, they have profound insight into our Christian theology and practical principles on everyday living. In other words, God's word not only teaches us what is true, it also teaches us how to live that truth. And when we begin to live in that truth, church, can I just tell you, that's when we begin to experience joy and peace and freedom. Amen? Okay, let's dive into Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. I'm not sure how far we'll get. I think I'm going to read about eight verses. Probably won't get through half of them, but let's dive in here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Just as in all the world, also it is bearing fruit and increasing. Even it has been doing in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, let's just pause for here, and this is where we're going to dive in today. I want us to dive into what we just read. And first of all, I want you to just notice that Colossians was written much differently than the book of Acts. Like, Acts was written as a historical account of all that took place within the early church, kind of narrating all the events of the, um, and the actions of the early believers and the apostles, and it was kind of written in story format, whereas Colossians was written as a personal letter, a direct communication from the apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. And in his letter, his purpose is clear, to provide the Colossian believers with essential instruction, encouragement, and a deeper understanding of their faith. And he starts his letter with this greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, if you'll read Paul's other writings, you'll notice that this was a common greeting that both Paul and other New Testament writers would often use. But I just want to highlight the beauty that this greeting alone <laughs> conveys. Because this greeting is one that combines both elements from Greek and Jewish tradition. Like, for example, the word grace, that's the Greek word charis. And the word grace was a common greeting in Greek culture. And it conveyed the idea of favor and kindness or goodwill. But whenever Paul would use this word, he would then infuse it with a deeper Christian meaning, referring to the unmerited favor and the love of God that's bestowed upon us as Christians. And so by using this Greek greeting, 
Paul aimed to connect with the cultural context of those reading this letter while simultaneously conveying the profound message of God's grace in Christ. And so he says, grace, charis to you, and peace from God our Father. Now the word peace, that's the Hebrew word shalom. Many of you probably know it. And this is a traditional Hebrew greeting. And shalom encompasses much more than just the absence of conflict, but it carries a sense of well-being and harmony and completeness. In Jewish culture, the concept of peace was deeply connected to the covenant relationship with God. And so whenever Paul included peace in his greeting, he expressed his desire for them to experience the fullness of peace through Christ Jesus. And so by combining these two words in his greeting, he beautifully conveys the essence of the Christian faith. He conveyed the message that God's grace through Christ reconciles sinners to himself. And through this reconciliation, believers can experience true peace with God, knowing that they are justified and that they are loved by their heavenly Father. Come on, did you know that all of that was wrapped up in just his greeting? Isn't that awesome? Well, what you're going to find is that with Paul, this guy was very intentional with his words. And when you think about it, you kind of got to be whenever uh, parchment paper and ink isn't easily available. I mean, there wasn't a Staples or an Office Depot in first century Rome, right? Now, for those of you that don't know what parchment is, parchment is a writing material that was made from animal skins. Uh, typically, it would be animals uh, like sheep or goats. And parchment was expensive. Like, just to write his letter to the Colossian church, it would have cost Paul somewhere right around $1,500 in today's cost. And so you know that Paul made every word count as he wrote his letters to the early churches. And so it's for that reason, I think, that we need to dive into every word because many of those words contain a library of commentary worth looking into. I mean, for example, the word shalom alone requires a whole volume to be able to understand all that it entails because it entails and encompasses layers upon layers of wisdom and knowledge. And I mention this because there may be some messages in this series where we take one paragraph or one sentence and maybe even one word and dissect and mine it to find the hidden treasures of truth that they hold. And I also mention this uh, because in your time of reading and studying God's word, God will show you by the power of the Holy Spirit insight and revelation, which will lead to growth, which will lead to transformation, and which will lead to a deeper connection with him. And so if I greet you next week by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father, you guys are now know, know what I'm going to mean, all right? So let's dive into the rest of what we read. Verse 3 says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, I said that there's going to be some verses that I'm just going to take. I think I'm just going to take this verse, honestly, because this, this one's loaded. So this might be one of those examples of where we're just going to dive into this one verse right here and see what all it has to say. And again, let me just highlight Paul's intentionality, right? 
he greets the saints in Colossae with this power-packed greeting. And the first thing that he says to them is, we give thanks to God. Very first thing, Paul comes right out of the gate. We give thanks to God. Now remember, Paul is writing this while wearing an ankle monitor. He's under house arrest for a crime that he didn't commit. We just read in our all-in series all the things that Paul went through, the beatings, the shipwreck, the persecution, all as a result of preaching the gospel. But I want you to notice something. Paul comes right out of the gate and says, I thank God. He doesn't talk about all of the problems and all the things that he had to endure. As a matter of fact, I went ahead and read through the whole book just to make sure. He never once talks about what he goes through to the Colossians. But what does he say? He comes out and says, I thank God. Now, I don't know about you, but that causes conviction to rise up in my heart. Because I can think of a lot of times that I immediately went into straight all the woe is me's. And I elect to become a victim rather than a victor. Church, can I just tell you something? In every situation that you face in life, you can either choose to be a victim or a victor. You say, but Chris, I was a victim. Well, maybe you were. I'm pretty sure that there's probably not a person in this room who hasn't experienced some form of victimization in various ways. But the question is, are you going to continue to be a victim? Or are you going to choose to be a victor? Because what I have seen, both in the world, uh, especially in the world, but in the church also, are people who have adopted a victim mentality. Now watch this, because if you don't know what I'm talking about, what I mean by that is they've chose to dwell on their challenges and dwell on their difficulties and their hardships that they've experienced in life. And they've allowed them then to identify, or I'm sorry, to identify or rather define their identity and also to control their outlook in life. You see, a victim mentality focuses solely on what has been lost or what we lack which leads to a cycle of negativity and self-pity. But a victor mindset is one of faith and resilience. It doesn't dismiss the reality of the challenges that we're facing. It just chooses to rise above them by relying on God's strength and relying upon his grace to overcome. See, a victor looks beyond the present circumstance and trusts that God is at work, even whenever the evidence seems to suggest otherwise. A victor trusts that there is purpose in every situation. See, look, Paul could have easily talked about all of the injustices that were brought up against him, but he didn't. Instead, he allowed gratitude to flow forth. Even in the midst of his trials, he said, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. I guess if I were to pull three life principles from Paul's greeting, it would be this. Gratitude, glorification, and generosity. 
Like Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae, they beautifully embody these three essential qualities. Gratitude, glorification of God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and three, a spirit of generosity as he interceded for others. Now, if we can just lay hold of these three life principles, we would undoubtedly find ourselves in a greater place of strength and growth in our faith. And so I want us to just break those three principles down and then give them a little bit of life application if we could, all right? Now, we've already been talking a little bit about gratitude, but I want to just take it a little bit step further here and teach you what it means to be grateful in faith. Because the other part that I've been talking about is just kind of manners. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I was taught manners. You know, my mom and dad taught me manners. And when someone does something for you, like you thank them, right? Well, what I'm talking about here now, and I want to teach you, is about the importance of being grateful in faith. And what I mean by that is choosing to be grateful even before you see the answer to your prayer. Even before you see any change. In another letter that Paul wrote, Philippians, he teaches us what it means to be grateful in faith. In Philippians 4, 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Won't you underline that in your Bible there? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Many years ago, this particular scripture it altered the way that I think about gratitude. Because I had thought that gratitude was just simply being thankful for something that someone had done for me or had given me. But it was the context of, of always being able to measure it, right? It was something that I could see, that I could put my eyes on, that I, that I, I could hear. Like, like, I don't know, thank you for buying me lunch or thank you for opening the door for me or Thank you for that kind comment. And those are all good things, but like um, they were things that was always uh, in past tense, right? But what Paul's talking about here, the context that Paul's given this, he, he's telling us to show gratitude even though there wasn't anything that you could see or lay hold of in the natural. He was talking about expressing gratitude in faith. Now, this requires showing gratitude in the future tense. Now watch this. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. In other words, our faith isn't dependent upon what we see. Our faith is reliant upon the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think according to his power, which is at work within us. And so whenever Paul comes along in Philippians in his other letter and says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, he then adds in these two words, with thanksgiving. And this is an essential preposition. Because while it's important that we bring our request before God, it is equally important that we express our gratitude for that request in faith. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an illustration to maybe try to explain what I'm talking about here. Let's say, Pastor Daniel, I'm getting ready to go out of town for a few days, and I have a really important package that's going to be dropped off by UPS in the front of my house. Probably going to be baseball cards, old vintage baseball cards, sports cards, 
just in case you ever want to know what to buy your pastor's gift, throw that out there. But if you could go and grab it because it's really important and just hold on to it till I get back, man, I would really appreciate that if you would do that for me. Would you mind to do that for me? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. Now, pause for a minute. Y'all know where I'm going with this. Why did I just tell him thank you? He hadn't done anything yet. He didn't go get it. He didn't spend one little ounce. All he did is say, yeah. But he didn't do a thing. But yet, I said thank you. Why? Because I believe that he's going to. I believe that he is good at his word. Well, watch this. In the same way, we bring our requests before God and we trust that he will hear our prayers, answer our prayers, maybe not in the way that we think that he's going to answer our prayers because he doesn't always answer them the way that we want him to, but he always answers them in the way that's best for us. Hello. And so what do we do? We say, thank you, Lord. Come on, some of you guys need to start thanking God in faith for what you're believing for. Say, God, I thank you that I am healed. Oh, I know you need hurt this morning. Oh, I know your back is still bothering you. I know you still got the sniffles. I know what the doctor said about this situation. But how many of you know that there can be the fact about a situation, but then there's the truth about the situation? I'm talking about God's truth, which overrides the fact. And so we start expressing out of the heart of gratitude, faith. We show gratitude in faith. So we say, I thank you, God, that I'm healed. I thank you, God, that I have enough money to pay my bills. Oh, I realize there's only $375.64, and I've got to make a $1,400 mortgage payment here within the next 10 days. But God, I remember reading in Matthew 6.33 where you said, if I seek you first, that you will provide all things for me. And so, Lord, I thank you, you're Jehovah Jireh. I thank you, God, that you give me everything that you need. And so we begin to express this faith. Parents, some of y'all need to say, God, I thank you that my child is serving you. You say, oh, but you don't understand, Pastor. My, 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 my child right now, he's a hellion, and he's doing everything wrong. You're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm talking about calling things not as though they were. I'm talking about calling forth the seed of the Word of God that you've sowed inside of him, believing that you've trained him in the way in which he should go, and that he's not going to be, uh, depart once he gets older. And so we start to say, God, I thank you that my kids, that they're Filled with the Spirit of God, and that they're going to serve you, and that my kids' kids are going to love you, and that my kids are going to bring their kids to church. Come on, are y'all with me this morning? Hey, watch this. If we will start thanking God in faith for the things that we don't see, then it's just a matter of time before we begin to witness His hand moving in our life. This is the absence of faith. I mean, this is just basically the illustration that I gave you. Our thanksgiving becomes a bold declaration of faith and confidence in God's ability to fulfill his word. And can I just tell you something? He is a man of his word. He is a God of his word. I feel like that's a word of instruction also for some of you that are here who you have yet to see your prayers answered. In the natural. Well, it's time to start seeing it in the supernatural. It's start to, time to start seeing it with your spiritual eyes, with eyes of faith. And it's time to let your words align with that faith. 
How do we do that? Well, here's how we do that. Here's how we get to that place where our faith is so strong that we call things not as though they were. And that's Paul's second life principle. This is how we get there. Remember that second word? Glorification. We bring glory to God through Jesus Christ in all things. And you know what that means? Look, that means that we don't borrow, steal, or give away his glory to another. Let let me say that again. That means we don't steal, borrow, or give away his glory to another. James 1.17 says this. It says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Friends, any good thing that you have in your life, it came from God. I know that some of you may think that it was your hands that gave you what you got, but can I just say who gave you those hands? Who gave you that mind to be able to come up with that great business idea that you have? You know what? There's a scripture that I look to often. Anytime that I'm tempted to take on something that I think that my hands has created, and it's found in Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. Like anytime I feel like there's some good coming my way, and I kind of puff my chest up a little bit, and a big smile says, well, look what I did. Here's what Deuteronomy 8.18 reminds me of. It says, but remember, as in don't forget, because you have the proclivity to do that, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And by the way, can I just say, God takes great delight in blessing his children. But the moment that we claim what came from God as something that we earned or deserved, it's at that moment that we start to see those blessings begin to diminish. You see, there's a biblical principle of stewardship that reminds us that we, all we have is on loan from God. And that our role is simply to manage those things faithfully and responsibly. You see, having the understanding that we are simply stewards of God's blessings, that keeps us from the trap of pride and selfishness. It also helps produce generosity in our hearts, which really is Paul's third principle. Because when I begin to understand that everything that I have really isn't mine, I'm just stewarding it as a faithful son and a daughter, then when God leads me to be generous, it isn't that hard. Why? Because it isn't really mine anyway. Church, let me ask you something. If God were to say to you, I'm going to give you $50,000, but I want you to give it towards something. I'm just going to simply funnel it through you. Would you do it? If that's you, I want to ask you, say rhetorical, if that's you. And if you said, yeah, if God sent $50,000 through me and he just wants to funnel every bit of it, I'm not going to put my my hand to it. I'm not going to be like Ananias and Sapphira and say, well, God, there's that 50 that I promised. I'll go ahead and hold on to 30. I'll still give you 20, but you say, no, I'll, 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 I'll sign up for that. Who will sign up for that? Raise your hand. 
Every person that raised your hand right now, hold it up for a minute. I add my faith to yours, and I believe God that you will have that in your lifetime come your way in some form or fashion. I'm not telling you what to do with it. God will tell you what to do with it, but you don't keep it. I'm, I'm standing in agreement with you. Thank you. But now let me ask this. What if God said, I'm going to give you $5,000 or $500, and I want you to give it towards something? Would you do that? See, I see more hands going up for the 50000 than I do the other. Because you know what? It seems like the other's something that's a little less unattainable or beyond what is possible. But what about what God has already given you? Church, I'm talking about generosity. And I want you to grab hold of the truth that when you allow yourself to be a vessel that God wants to use to bless others, watch out. Because the blessings of God will then overtake you. Now, Paul not only showed generosity, and he does it in many different ways, but he constantly reminded the early church about the importance of being generous. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says, remember this. I think any time the Bible says remember, that kind of tells me that we have that proclivity to forget. <laughs> kind of like Deuteronomy. Right, Because here Paul's saying, you know, the same thing. And he's saying, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, Paul places emphasis on our giving as a matter of the heart. But of course he would, right? Why? Because Jesus said the same thing. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he wrote this. He said, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid. More than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Now, did you catch that? If a pastor were to say that very thing today, he would be accused of being a prosperity preacher. Yet I just read the scripture to you. Right? Paul was no prosperity preacher. He simply knew the law of sowing and reaping. And he knew that by their generosity, God would bless them. That's why he said, it's not your gift that I want. I've made this statement throughout our 11 years of a church many times when I feel the spirit of greed in the room. And I feel like people are kind of looking at me like, well, he's just trying to say that, you know, because he's trying to raise money for the church. I, I, and I'll say it again. I'll say, okay, just so I can break that spirit of greed, then don't give it here if you think that's what's happening. I want you to be blessed. I don't desire your gift. I desire that you be blessed. I know what it means. I'm a giver. It's okay for me to say that, I hope, because I am a giver. It's the truth. And I know the blessing that comes when we become generous. Paul goes on in Philippians 4, 18. He says that their gifts 
Now catch this. He says, those gifts that you have given there, church at Philippi, he says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now that's what we're looking for. We want to do something that is pleasing to God. Now you may say, well, what's pleasing to God? Well, the widow's might was pleasing to God. Abel's offering was pleasing to God. Mary's alabaster box that she broke and put on the feet of Jesus was pleasing to God. The proceeds that came from the land that Barnabas sold was pleasing to God. Dorcas' act of charity was pleasing to God. Hannah's gift of Samuel was pleasing to God. See, not every form of generosity is measured in dollars and cents. As a matter of fact, I feel like this is a great place for us to land this morning. Because while God desires that we be a generous people, generosity doesn't start with emptying our wallets. It starts with us emptying ourselves of us. You see, true generosity is not merely about us giving from our place of abundance, but it begins with us giving ourselves wholeheartedly to God. It's about us surrendering our desires, our ambitions, and our priorities so that they would align with his will. And when we begin to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, our giving becomes a fragrant offering pleasing to God. Come on, can everyone just stand with me if you would? Stand to your feet. I just really feel led to do something. If we can get the ushers to grab all the communion elements back there real quick. I feel like as we're sitting here talking about the importance of generosity and the true essence of giving, I, I want us to take communion together this morning. You know, just as we've learned about how it pleases God whenever we offer ourselves in love and generosity, we often need to be reminded. And Jesus even said, do this in remembrance of me. We're reminded of the ultimate act of selfless giving that came from our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the one that we look to for redemption, for salvation, yes, but also to emulate and to walk as Jesus walked and to live as Jesus lived. But before we take communion, I want to first do this. I want to ask, who is here this morning and you are not in right standing with God? You've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of your life or, or perhaps at, at one point you walked with God, but now you've strayed from him. I want you to know that right now you can be reconciled with God. I want you to know that no matter how far you think you are from God, no matter how many sin you think that you have and how many marks have been written against you, I want you to know that though our sin is as scarlet, the scripture says, his blood washes white as snow. The blood of Jesus is here to cleanse, to redeem, and to put you in right standing with God. And so I just want to ask who is here this morning that you're not in right standing with God. Look at me for just a moment. 
moment because this is the most important part of what we do in our gathering. I want you to know that this world has nothing to offer. It has nothing to provide you that is going to bring you happiness. Amazon Prime can't bring you a dose of joy. It can't get you strength for what your mom's going through, for what your sister's going through, what your child's going through, and what you're going through. But the blood of Jesus, it covers it all. And his grace is sufficient for everything. Not only that, friend, you cannot be good enough to get into heaven. Are you hearing me? Don't believe the lie that, okay, I'll just be a good humanitarian, a good person, and then God's going to let me into heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Why do you think that Jesus needed to come and to pay the price? If we could have paid it ourselves, he wouldn't have needed to come. But he needed to come and pay it because you and I, we couldn't pay that price. The good news is, thank God we don't have to. Thank God Jesus paid it on our behalf. And so if you're here this morning, and maybe you've even put on your church clothes this morning, and you've put on your, I'm a Christian, but you know in your heart that you're not close to God. I see it happen every Sunday. I see it happen from church to church where people come in, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a good Christian person. I always, I always struggle with that good Christian person because there's nothing good about us because the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. No, you're a forgiven person who has received the grace of God, lest any of you boast. And so what we all need is grace. And if you want to be a recipient of the grace of God, friend, you have no need of anything. You don't need to join this church. You don't need to fill out a paperwork. Right there at your seat, you can say, God, I receive your grace. And at this exact moment, the Bible says that if we will confess with our mouth, Jesus as Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That means that our sin is thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. That means that we are brought into right standing with God because of what Jesus did at Calvary. And so if you want to receive that free gift right now, I'm going to ask with every head up, every eye open. I'm going to do the opposite of what you heard preachers normally do because if you ain't going to respond to this here at church, you sure ain't going to walk it out once you leave this place. If you say, I want to be in right standing with God, put your hand up right now. If that's you, say, I want to be in right standing with God. I want, to be, I want to be a Christian. I want to surrender my life to him. Come on. Whoever is, is, is watching online and this is you as well, I want you to join in with me. Now, in this room, the eyes are blinding me, but I don't see a hand up right now. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that next week you need to have someone here so that whenever I present this opportunity for them to give their life to Christ, that there will be sinners here. Are, are you with me? The church is not a country club, it's a hospital. And I know you know some people that need to visit this spiritual hospital. Are you with me? I promise to bring the gospel with all my heart if you bring them next week. And I promise to give this opportunity every time I stand behind this pulpit. Now, for those who are watching online, because there's a lot that watches us, thank God for technology all across the nation. I'm going to lead us in this prayer because I know that there will be some, some that aren't even watching live, but we'll watch this later on. I want you to know that right there, watching this video, you can call upon Jesus as Lord. This could have been recorded 10 years ago. And friend, I want you to know that an invitation does not carry an expiration date. All you have to do is call upon Jesus as Lord. And he will save you, friend. He will give you the citizenship of heaven. 
And so we're going to all pray with you because there's no one today. There's usually someone whose hand's here today, but we believe that there's going to be some of you that's going to call out and Jesus is going to save you and redeem you. So we're going to just pray this prayer together with you. And so are all the saints of God here in the house. And we're going to confess Jesus as Lord. Come on, saints of God. Can we do that right now? Pray this out loud. Pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. And I ask you, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from it. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave, just as your word says. Now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known in Jesus' name.